Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 6th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Last year, 32% of calls to the National Housing Charity threshold came from tenants faced with losing their homes. That's 23,500 people renting accommodation who sought help because they'd been asked to move out of their homes. With rents higher now than they've ever been in this country, it's a landlord's market. The Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy, who launched the threshold report yesterday, said new legislation will double the notices tenant is given before they have to move out and that the Residential Tenancies Board will be given independent powers to examine and then take action if it finds a landlord is breaching the rent cap in what's known as rent pressure zones. John Mark McCafferty, Chief Executive of Threshold, joins us now. Good morning to you, John Mark, and thanks for taking the time to us. These rent pressure zones are pockets of the country where rent can be increased by a maximum of four in the course of a year. Yet 18% of the calls to threshold in the last year out of the 73,500 calls you fielded were from people who were complaining about the rent being increased. Good morning, Michael. Yes. Um, now, not all areas are covered by the rent pressure zones. As you, as you know, um, it's, it's mostly the urban areas. Um, there's some, some obvious exceptions. Uh, the likes of um, Limerick City is not covered by a rent pressure zone. And parts of uh, the northeast are, are covered by rent pressures, but a, a lot of the northeast isn't. Um, now, even those areas that are covered by the rent pressure zones, they have generally seen um, increases in rents that are um, over and above the rent pressure zone limits. So, while um, uh, some landlords, many landlords, are adhering to the rent pressure zones, many landlords are also um, ignoring them or. They don't, some don't, simply don't understand that when uh, one tenancy um, finishes um, and a new person comes into a tenancy, um, the rent pressure zone um, the rules still apply. They can't just um, hike up the price according to the, the market rate. Well, that puts to bed the argument uh, that Taoiseach appeared to be making in the Dáil yesterday because this dominated leaders' questions in the Dáil, as I'm sure you know uh, as well. And the Taoiseach was suggesting that the increases that we hear about are new lets on the daft.ie website, so not reflective, he would have suggested, of uh, the pressure on existing tenants. 
Well, uh, yeah, we, we've got to be careful when we talk about new lets because there's there's new lets where um, a tenant has just left a property mm. and a, a new tenant and comes first in. time they, lets. They, yeah, no, they those those first that first category, um, those landlords can't increase um, the rent levels over and above the rent pressure zone uh, limits. However, for first time lets mm. or where properties haven't been let for more than two years that property can be let at the market rate. Mm. But the majority of uh, apartments or houses uh, that are adver- advertised for rent are uh, not being rented out for the first time. Yeah, they're relet. Mm. Um, and, and what we're seeing is um, landlords, some landlords who simply don't fully understand all of the legislation because there's lots of it and it is complex. Mm. So when the daft.ie report reflects an increase of whatever it is, 8, 10, 12%, depending on which part of the country you're looking at, uh, generally speaking, if those increases are in rent pressure zones, it, it proves that landlords are breaching that legislation. It, it, it certainly proves that there's a, a good share of landlords that are breaching that legislation, either knowingly or unknowingly. And that's why it's so important that new legislation comes um, in, which gives the RTB the powers to, as you say, examine and also enforce where the breaches are taking place. And it relates to rent increases, but also relates to where um, there are um, terminations mm. of tenancies um, and where the landlord um, has perhaps falsely um, claimed that the uh, tenancy has been terminated on the grounds of sale. We, we have seen cases and we've worked with clients where um, they were told um, that they had to leave the property, they got a notice to quit, and the landlord said they were they were selling. Um, the tenant left the property, and, uh, either faced homelessness or found a new property with great difficulty in the current market, only to find out that the property itself was relet at a higher rent. Um, and the importance of any new legislation is that it must um, include the powers to um, challenge um, that kind of behaviour among landlords and sanction um, landlords because currently it's the the tenant's word against the landlords and the tenant must um, take the action Mm. and many tenants um, just struggle to try and find an alternative um, place to live and once they find that place to live a lot of the time they just want to get on with their lives they don't want to think about the trauma of having to move and having to face uh, the prospect or the risk of homelessness. Yeah, it's uh, not always fair on the landlord, though, is it? Um, in what way, Michael? Well, I'm sure there's plenty of ways. Uh, but for example, if a landlord is renting out a property, let's say at 600 euro to a tenant who's been in the house for 10 years, uh, in a market uh, where you could get maybe 1,200 euro in rent for a similar property, uh, but because there's a good long relationship there, the rent is kept low. Uh, is it fair on that landlord if that tenant moves out that they would be forced? to give a discount price to somebody coming in that they don't know? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there have been, you know, there, there are lots of good landlords that, and some landlords have um, levied their rents uh, way, way below the market the market rate. Um, and um, I have huge sympathy for, for uh, landlords and that's who, who are kind of caught in that situation. And I guess that's a matter for government for, uh, for them to, um, if they feel there's a sufficient need to kind of rectify that, then... The, uh, they have the power to do so. Um, however, um, the impact of, or the intention rather, of the rent pressures mm. on legislation two years ago was to try and address the fact that, you know, the majority of um, lets were 
um, increasing the rents of those properties, of those tenancies, were increasing at such a rate that affordability was becoming a um, crisis point and was forcing um, a number of families and individuals effectively into homelessness yeah. because of a lack of affordability. But uh, I take it uh, that there's uh, the risk uh, that this could impact negatively, let's say, on that tenant who's been in that house for the last 10 years, renting at 600 The landlord knows uh, that the rent would be otherwise 1200 uh, and uh, the RTB is to establish this rent register. So once that register is registered at 600 uh, well, then it's 600 with 4% on top of that forevermore it would seem uh, so uh, there's a chance the landlord will increase the rent now is there not to 1200 well if the the property is already in a rent pressure zone um then they, they can't at this stage well move a tenant out i, I mean you, you you're dealing with this all the time where landlords are increasing the rent uh, or they're moving people out despite what the law says yeah, and if they move a tenant out to get another tenant at a higher rate and they're covered within the rent pressure zones, then they can still only maintain that 4% annual increase. But they're not, um, as we've been discussing. Yep. So, yep. so uh, I mean, is, is there a risk with establishing a rent register like this that it actually will turn out to be a negative for some people? But I guess the challenge for any housing policy is there's always a law of unintended consequences. And when landlords hear that, hear that something's coming down the line or they sense that something's coming down the line, they may take um, evasive action prior to that legislation mm. happening. That's a risk. It's, it's not a reason um, not to do anything. And the challenge really uh, for government is to design good regulations um, and good policies that try and attempt to um, make uh, the rent, rented accommodation as affordable as possible uh, by moderating rents, also by increasing security of tenure um, and the legislation. Mm we hope, should have things in there. Yeah, but that just seems fundamentally wrong, John, Mark. I mean, you know, I highlighted a a situation there that is either unfair on the landlord or unfair on the tenant. Uh, And so be it, it would seem. Well, I do have great sympathy with landlords who have um, rent, who have let to tenants way below the market rate and where the rent pressure zones have come in and they can, if you like, write their hands. Now, as I say, that's for government to address if mm. um, they, they feel that's appropriate. Um, we, we are mindful of the situation facing um, a certain proportion of landlords, and we certainly don't want a situation where um, further um, supply of private rented accommodation um, is on the decrease. However, it's all about that very, very delicate balance and, and trying to ensure that, for the most part, across the board, there is greater rent moderation, there is greater security of tenure, and at the edges, there will, there, there will be um, you know, either tenants or landlords who are affected in, in one way or the other. I, I do understand that lack of certainty is uh, and can be uh, quite um, disorientating and um, it, it can affect landlords, but I guess what we're looking for in the legislation that's currently um, about to go through the doll is to kind of, if you like, once and for all, try and cop and fasten for the kind of medium to long term measures that address both um, rent certainty and security of tenure. You mentioned the notice periods, so longer mm-hmm. notice periods, so therefore 
um, tenants have a longer period of time in which to try and find accommodation because right now there are fewer available um, advertised uh, properties for let than there have been in many, many years. That in itself is a crisis. I mean, when Threshold was operating, say, eight, ten years ago, um, if there was a dispute or if you know a, a tenant had been given notice to quit, they had options. There was a lot more private rented units kind of uh, available relative to the demand. Um, and so they could kind of shop around and they would find a place. Now the stakes are so much higher and that's why it's our, our tenancy protection service, which is effectively the National Homeless Preventative Service run by Threshold, is so important because we're trying to save people's homes. We're trying to keep families and individuals in their homes because the alternative is to try and find accommodation which is few and far between. Now, the, the longer um, notice periods mm. will help, but that doesn't change the fact that there, there are very few um, units available to let. What might help is um, changes in the legislation to short lets, for example, you know, kind of Airbnb style lets. That hopefully will bring in uh, next year, later next year, more uh, or reintroduce more houses and apartments back into the market. Um, but we still have an issue with supply. We still have an, an issue with affordability. And we have a crucial issue with um, security of tenure. Uh, many uh, families and individuals are worried about the spectre of the landlord um, issuing a notice of termination. Um, and it has huge implications for people in terms of um, where they live, where they work, where their children go to school, if they cannot source affordable accommodation in their local area, in their community. And, and that's it. It's not just moving out of the home that they live in now. It's finding another place to call home and being able to uh, afford it. And quite often, uh, it seems as though rents are unaffordable. Uh, they're the highest they've ever been in the country. Uh, and uh, when it comes uh, to your disposable income and uh, the percentage of that that's spent on rent, the rent is probably in excess of what a lot of people are earning. But Threshold helps uh, people in certain parts of the country, Mead being one of four counties in terms of meeting what's available to them through HAP and what's being asked of them in rent. Yes, indeed. Um, we, we are funded to provide a service um, in the commuter counties and indeed nationally. I mean, our, you know, our 1800 454 454 number um, is available to everyone across the state, right across the northeast. Um, and what our advisors can do um, via that 1800 454 454 number is provide advice um, and assist in more complex queries where uh, people are renting and worried about losing their home. We mediate with landlords, we represent at the Residential Tenancies Board and where appropriate at the Workplace Relations Commission. Um, but we provide a kind of a breathing space where we uh, go through the kind of the rights, responsibilities and options um, for renters, um, the, the possible pathways. We also have a protocol with the Department of Social Protection where people um, continue to have, or have access to rent supplement, where that can be increased. What we're looking for from government is a, a facility where HAP, um, we, we'd have, we could have a similar arrangement with the housing assistance payment because what we're seeing increasingly is that the rent supplement levels and the HAP levels um, are only, uh, you know, sometimes just two-thirds or three-quarters of, of what the, uh, the actual kind of market rents are given um, how high the rents are, especially in places if you look at Meath, the commuter towns of Meath, they are effectively the same um, the same rental levels as most of Dublin. That's a huge chunk out of family um, budgets, um, and 
that has to have a knock-on effect on uh, people managing fuel bills, um, school-related costs, health costs, food, all the other utility bills. Um, and it will have a dampening effect on local economies and the national economy. So um, there are all sorts of, kind of facets to the housing crisis um, caused or originating in the private rented sector that we're trying to tackle. We can't do it on our own. We're looking for the assistance of people's generosity at this time as we launch our annual report and as we conduct our annual appeal. Um, and um, we can't do it without um, statutory funding uh, and government continues to fund us for um, for our services also in order to provide the tenancy protection service, which assists people to hold on to those rented homes that they've been in maybe for many years um, and to help secure those homes in the face of the kind of pressures that okay. renters are experiencing now. All right, I have to leave it there for the moment, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. As always, uh, John Mark McCafferty is uh, the Chief Executive of Threshold. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Minister of State in uh, the Department of Health, Jim Daly, was in front of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Health and Children yesterday to explain an overspend in the health service. We'll hear about this uh, by speaking with Louise O'Reilly, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health and a member of uh, that committee. Uh, it's a lot of money that the health service spent that it hadn't been budgeted with, some $655 million Euro, Louise O'Reilly. Yes, and uh, good morning, good morning Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Um, yeah, it's quite a lot of money. Um, but what's the most worrying about it is that it was entirely predicted. And I said this to the, the junior minister yesterday. At the time of uh, last year's budget, uh, I predicted this. I predicted that there was going to be an overrun before the end of the year. Um, and that's fine, and the government will dismiss the opposition. But uh, the then chief of the HSE wrote to the Department of Health um, only a couple of weeks after the budget, and he outlined that he believed that there was going to be a deficit by the end of the year. And yes, uh, what we see is a complete failure to plan for it. So hence the minister uh, lands in on the Health Committee uh, to discuss another supplementary budget for health um, and I mean, the, the you know the job of the opposition mm. is to hold the government to account, Michael. And, and it, 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 it is a, another supplementary budget, not just on top of the supplementary budget last year, but it, it's the second time uh, that uh, the health service has been bailed out this year, is it not? Yes, and we have the problem of this sort of rolling deficit. So um, the Fiscal Advisory Council have looked at this, and in their opinion, since 2014, the health service has been running a deficit of between 0.5 and 0.6 billion. And that's getting rolled over year on year, which means we're not getting a true picture mm. of what it is that we actually need to uh, to run our health service. Now, the description given by the Financial Advisory Council uh, is that the health service um, have weak planning and weak spending controls. So that would lead to uh, an inability to be able to actually keep a hold of the budget. Now, it's... You know, obviously, the minister said yesterday, you know, we're dealing with a demand-led service. And of course, I know that. But when you look back over the past year, we haven't had any major uh, outbreak of disease. So there's mm. nothing that would have put an unexpected um, an unexpected pressure onto our health service. I mean, there's changes in demographics, but those are entirely predictable using CSO data. You know, mm. and I'm, I'm not saying you can predict everything, Michael, of course you can. Yeah. But we haven't had any major blip 
any major outbreak of disease that would make you go, okay, well, that will account for why we, you know, why the government have failed. Well, one of the the reasons why they have less money uh, which they probably didn't budget for, but they had less money because there was a reduction in prescription charges. So why didn't they budget for it? This is my point, and this is what the, the Fiscal Advisory Council are saying, is weak planning and weak spending controls leads us to a situation whereby there is a deficit. But if you flip that over at the level of the hospital, at the level mm. of the individual um, you know, managers within the hospital service, they're under pressure now to make savings. Now, I, I questioned the minister about this, and I have questioned the HSE about this, and I have to tell you, the savings target is something that uh, that I find absolutely insane. The savings target was set at €346 million. Euros. Now, I've asked very senior people in the HSE at the committee, I've also asked the minister yesterday, where did they get that figure of €346 million? So the HSE have been told, save €346 million. And I said to the minister, where did you get that figure? So when you're planning and you're, you know, you're putting all your, your mm. plans in place, they stuck in a figure of €346 million for savings. Mm. Nobody has been able to identify from me, Michael, where... Not 300 even or 350 even. It's a, no, a peculiar and, figure, and 340 the cynic in me, uh, yeah. the cynic in me, and I said this yesterday. The cynic in me says, "Well, look at you know, let's put in three hundred and fifty million, and someone else says, no, let's throw in three hundred and forty-six. It sounds more believable." What about three hundred and forty-six million forty-seven cent? <laughs> <laughs> and Sorry. two green shield stamps. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know. It, it, I mean, I couldn't get over it. But there was no explanation. Minister. There was absolutely none. Mm. And I asked them, you know, have you targeted savings by converting agency staff into directly employed staff? So this is another shocking figure. Mm. Now, €866,192 per day is being spent on agency staff. Mm. So, I mean, I've, I've questioned and the Minister for Health on this. He says himself it's not good value for money. And a large chunk of this. On agency Every single day. But a, a large chunk of the 655 million overspend has been spent on staff, has it not? But it's a demand-led service, so you have to have the staff. Mm. Or, you know, I mean, mm. we have on the flip side, though, uh, yesterday I hosted a, a briefing session for TDs, on, uh, for TDs from all parties now, uh, and senators, um, and we had the IMO, the IHCA, mm. the INMO and SITU in with us. And, you know, they're talking about an absolute recruitment and retention crisis. So mm. for every four vacancies in uh, in the health service, uh, for four nursing vacancies, there's only one applicant. Of 1,500 uh, graduates that graduated last year, only 200 of them um, are actually, nursing graduates, only 200 of them are actually staying mm. here to, to work in this country. So we have a recruitment and a retention crisis. They're not dealing with it. Yeah. And then they're paying well, uh, very high premiums to uh, to agencies. Well, that's it. I, I mean, you'd be paying, what, maybe one third, is it? Or is it two thirds of uh, the cost uh, for full-time staff that you pay for agency staff? It's anything from, from a third to a half extra. Right, okay. and, uh, But the, more importantly, and, I, and you know, to, let's to put the money aside for one mm. moment, and the money is very important, don't get me wrong, mm. 
But when you have agency staff in, you don't get that continuity of care. So they're not assigned to the hospital, to the ward. They work for the agency and they're Mm. deployed wherever the work is. So you you have the, the, you know, you don't have the same people coming back to the same ward. Mm. They're not building up that relationship with the patients. Well, that's it. They don't don't know where the canteen is or or, or the toilets are, let alone uh, the individual (laughs) needs of people. When you start in any workplace, you know, the more than myself, it takes a while to get actually settled in. Yeah. But the difficulty with uh, with agency staff is they're becoming more and more reliant on agency staff to actually plug holes in the roster. And we heard yesterday from uh, from radiographers yeah. and from ambulance personnel, from nurses, from doctors and from consultants, and every single one of them said the same thing. They are massively short-staffed. Not, not short-staffed yeah. for doing extra innovations, short-staffed for actually just managing with Okay, the but the, the, the HSE is planning to save money. Uh, this year it's overspent by €655 million. Euro. It's an awful lot of money. I suppose everybody plans to save money. Health insurance companies have been successful at saving money uh, because the health service was charging people for procedures that were covered by health insurance and then the health uh, HSE was being paid on the double. As a result of health insurance companies asking people not uh, to uh, allow the HSE to claim from them, uh, the HSE is down eighty-five million euro. In other words, they were ripping these insurance companies off by eighty-five million euro. Well, I don't know where they're ripping them off because people were paying for the insurance and they're entitled to claim for it. You know, I'd love to see a system whereby nobody needed health insurance. I mean, I I know it here, and I met a woman in Melbourne. But that's one of the reasons people have it because they think they need it. Because this, this is my point. Yeah, I, I met a woman mm. very recently, and she having to, you know, I mean, as she said herself, it's going to be fairly lean times around Christmas. She's cutting back in order to be able to ensure that she can pay her health insurance. Mm. Now, that's not because she doesn't have an acute and ongoing illness. What she has is a worry that she will end up um, at the mercy of a waiting list or end up as one of the now 100,000 people who've been left on a trolley. Mm. You know, I mean, that's that's actually a a record, and and we might get a chance to talk about that at another stage, Michael. 100,000 people on trolleys, they hit that record even before the end of November this year. Mm. So people have a fear of going into the going in not so much going into the health the HSE but not getting access into the HSE so they are cutting back to be able to afford health insurance which means that they will get that vital access it's not for you know I mean, people aren't getting health insurance for, for the yeah, bells and whistles but it, it, it won't make any difference you'll still be on a trolley with your health insurance you know this is the thing and that's because we have mm. a capacity crisis and yeah. we won't solve the capacity crisis until we solve the recruitment and retention crisis. And it is an area now, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll hold the government to account, of course I will, but the capacity crisis and the failure to address it is something which I have raised. I think I, I can't count the number of occasions directly with the minister since I was elected. And it's something that they are entirely failing to get to grips with. And we're seeing the, the cost of that in cost overruns because they simply don't have the staff and they're spending additional money to try to plug gaps. Uh, a little bit like uh, the prescription charges, uh, I guess uh, there should have been some uh, accounting for additional medical cards uh, that were issued and 50 million extra needed uh, for doctors who treat medical card patients. Absolutely. And, you know, it's the failure to plan that, that really uh, that, that, that really shocks me. We heard yesterday uh, from the IMO and they've produced a document uh, which they believe will, if we can get the staff, lead to um, no more than a six-hour wait 
in our accident and emergency departments for 95% of people who attend. And they believe that with proper planning and with proper staffing arrangements, and, and indeed, I mean, I spoke to members of the INMO and SIPTU and the IHCA, and they believe that this can be done. It needs planning and it needs staff. But we actually could have, for the money that we spend on our health service, we could have a very, very good health service. But unfortunately, we find ourselves in a situation whereby the men and women on the front line are doing their best you know that, I know that, we've talked about this many times, the people who work in the health service are, are doing their absolute best but it's the people managing the money and uh, ultimately it's the it's the minister and the, the junior ministers and the department who are failing to plan and so at the end of the year we have this scramble, that means that the uh, the people who are managing the hospitals, who are managing the hospitals aren't in a position, the people managing community care they're not in a position to be able to plan effectively because they simply don't know uh, from one end of the year to the next what the budget is going to be and we see at the end of this year the uh, the gap is being plugged with uh, an unexpected uh, windfall we we'll say from uh, high corporation tax receipts but I mean the Minister yeah. for Public uh, the Minister for Finance has acknowledged this himself and, and others you can't rely on that but we're using that to plug uh, a, a funding gap in our health service and really that they're very shaky foundations on which to uh, to build a service that we all really need and want mm. and want to see doing well. Uh, and one of the services we've been talking about an awful lot recently is uh, cervical check. Uh, an additional five million spent on free consultations as a, a result of uh, the concerns uh, about scans and uh, we're talking about this of course uh, on foot of uh, the tragic story yesterday for 11 patients, four of whom are dead uh, following a, a review of scans in University Hospital. Kerry, any thoughts on that for us this morning, Louise O'Reilly? Well, the the report and um, I was in the, the, the doll last night until uh, just past midnight uh, yeah. on the termination yeah. of pregnancy yeah. legislation, mm-hmm. so I haven't had a chance to go through it in detail, but uh, it looks to me and uh, like there were um, that cancer was missed and that potentially as a result of that people had uh, had developed um, the, the cancer had developed with people and they now find themselves gravely ill four people are dead which is really really uh, worrying um, and again uh, we, we've had to have a, a, a report and an investigation to get any information. I know that Vicky Phelan uh, was in the Dáil yesterday um, meeting with, with TDs uh, to discuss the, the availability of the drug Pembro. Um, you know, and we have we don't want another scandal within our health service. We want openness and accountability. And, you know, Sinn Féin had brought forward uh, an amendment which would have ensured mandatory open disclosure. Now, it was voted down by the government in Fianna Fáil, but I understand now that both parties have uh, have reconsidered that and they're in a position now to support mandatory open disclosure, which is a very good thing. Uh, and we will see legislation on that uh, progressed. But I think we need to foster that culture of openness and uh, of you know, simply bringing patients in and telling them, you know, the issues in Kerry, Kerry University Hospital are very, uh, are, are very deeply worrying. And I'm going to be interested now to see what the response of the, the minister uh, is going to be to this report, because this report points to uh, issues regarding locum arrangements. And again, that goes back to agency and temporary staff and the issues that we were we were talking about just just there now. And, okay. 
that needs to be examined. I'm waiting the, the response of the Minister to see what action, if any, that he's going to take. Uh, I know that the report made some recommendations. We'd like to see a timeline on when those recommendations are going to be implemented. Well, we'll hear more on uh, that uh, debate that took place in uh, the Dáil last night on the abortion legislation a, a little bit later on in the programme, but it certainly was a, a late night, as you say, uh, on until midnight. So thank you indeed for getting up early to talk to us uh, this morning. It's much oh, my pleasure, Michael. So, that's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, Louise O'Reilly. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you've been hearing, LMFM News is reporting how independent councillor in Louth, Mayor, is questioning the amount of fines that have been issued to people who have been wrongly parking in disabled parking bays. And Mayor joins us now. And good morning to you, and thanks indeed for joining us. People will remember the Garda Operation Enable program that was launched, and how they promised that they would clamp down on this. It seems as though that's what they've done, but uh, you're wondering why Gardaí are issuing so many fines when traffic wardens are not doing the same. Yes, Michael, good morning. Good morning to um, It appears to me, I, I asked for clarification at the October municipal meeting. I had a question on the agenda to ask how many fines have been issued since Operation Enable launched on the 17th of April 2018. And the reply was a little bit confusing because I got a, a few figures bandied around, but... Mm. From the 1st of April 18th to 24th of the 9th, 18, it, it's written here, 31 fines have been issued. Now, 31 fines, that's in Dundalk Municipal. Um, we had a meeting on Tuesday with um, Chief, the Super, Jerry Corley, um, in relation to updating us on Operation Enable, myself and disability groups from across Louth. And he informed us that there's 307 fines issued. So, now that's across the whole county, that's not just in Dundalk. Right. So I feel there's a huge disparity. And again, at the at this Tuesday night's municipal meeting, the November municipal meeting for Dundalk, I asked for clarification on it again because it seems a huge disparity. And the only way Operation Enable is going to be a success is if the multi-agency initiative mm. and... And ju- just explain that to me, if you will. That 307, uh, the number of fines uh, that you're talking about, is that fines that were issued by both Gardaí and traffic wardens in Dundalk no, no. and Drogheda and RD no, no. and so on? The 307 is for Dundalk, Drogheda and RD. Now, Jerry didn't have a breakdown of each mm. district for me. He said he'll, he'll come back to me and see if he, if he can access some figures as a breakdown. But they're just from the Gardaí, are they? They're just from the Gardaí, right, okay, which is yeah, hugely yeah. alarming in a way in yeah. that 307 motorists are abusing disabled parking. OK, but if you were to Dundalk split it evenly, which is probably not the case, you'd be talking about 100, let's say, in Dundalk Municipal. That's uh, probably less than the actual figure. Uh, but yeah. let's say you t- said 100 uh, fines issued by the Gardaí compared to, to 31 fines issued by well, the traffic wardens. That's the correct figure. That's just what I'm saying. I yeah. just asked for clarification mm. on it because there was figures. I asked for 2017 figures comparing to 2018 from Operation Enable Launch. Mm. So maybe that's where the, the problem lies. But look, at, I asked for clarification. Um, I will keep asking for clarification. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but I mean, and, it, 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 it looks very straightforward in that the Gardaí are issuing fines and the traffic wardens aren't, or at least not to the same degree. Uh, three or four times more fines issued by the Gardaí, it would seem, uh, based on that crude calculation, uh, yeah. than uh, the traffic wardens are issuing. Yeah, well, 307 fines by, by Loud Gardaí in the county mm. and 
Now, unless this figure, you know, unless I'm reading it wrong, but um, the 31 fines issued um, mm. from the traffic wardens um, in Dundalk Municipal District mm. alone now, Michael, I want to state that. I don't want people thinking, you know, it's 307 in Dundalk. It's, no, but the, 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 the vast majority of the 307 are in Dundalk, in Drogheda. Uh, and if you were to argue that RD uh, would have had uh, the same, you divided by three and that's a hundred in Dundalk. Yeah, uh, in it itself yeah. it's three more than three times the amount that the traffic wardens have issued. Yeah, well that's what it appears to be. Mm. So I look at when I get clarification I'll certainly let people know. But the the, the, mm. the bottom line is Operation Enable is an initiative that we all know about. It's to cut down on the abuse of people parking in disabled parking bays mm. and to remind the motorists to respect you know, well, minds are focused also, on Garda Síochána, it would seem, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, because, I mean, if yeah. you were to split that figure in half, if uh, it's between Drod and Dundalk, it's 150 fines in Dundalk, which is five times the amount the traffic wardens are issuing. Yeah. Now, um, when I raised it the other night at the municipal meeting, um, the director did say, you know, um, there's only two traffic wardens in Dundalk, Councillor Yor, and I appreciate that, and, and they do do their work. And there's several more Gardaí and Traffic Corps and all that um, across the county. I do appreciate that. But I just think there has to be more action and ownership, you know, um, in relation to Operation Enable being a success. You know, we were the second county, we were the first county outside of Dublin to launch it um, Mm. in April. And Donegal, Donegal um, have launched it only last week, Operation Enable. So it's a nationwide problem, Michael. It's not just... um, it's not just a Dublin problem or a large problem. It's a nationwide problem. But it's also, I, I keep coming back to the motorists, um, and it's, it's to remind the permit holders as well, again, that they have to adhere to the conditions um, attached to their permits. In other words, if the person with a disability is not in the car with them, do not abuse your permit or to be taken off you. And that's the bottom line. Okay, you know. and it, it doesn't matter if you're only going to be a minute. Don't park in a disabled bay if no, you're not. I mean, I go on a walk about Michael every month in in Dundalk Municipal Area just to check different things. You know, um, like aqueducts missing and that on footpaths, and I, I do that once a month. And yesterday was my day for going out yesterday morning, and three different delivery lorries parked were parked now with their hazard lights on. Mm. I'll only be a minute. Mm. Um, in disabled parking bays and each time I approached them and I said sorry you're, you're parked in a disabled parking bay I'll only be a minute the guard said I could park there one chap said um, another chap said um, well where, where else do you want me to park and I said well not in a disabled parking bay um, and the other chap the third chap down in St Mary's Road said I'll only be a minute you know all in a day all in a day that's three in yeah. one day when I'm doing my walkabouts um, Michael do you know okay, what I mean okay so, well Keep walking, you know. Maeve. <laughs> okay, listen, I have to leave it there. Thanks very much. Thanks a million. And, and uh, happy Christmas to everybody, Michael. And to Thank you, you too. Thank okay. you indeed. Okay. Independent Councillor in Yow, Louth, Maeve Yor. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Lots of them. Thanks for everybody for taking the time to get in touch. Samantha was one of those people. She phoned in from Drogheda. She was listening to the interview view with John Mark McCafferty from Threshold and she says that she's heard of a number of cases whereby landlords have said that they were selling the house the tenants were
were in, gave the tenants, tenants notice, the tenants left and then lo and behold after a few months the house is up for rent again. She says it's a way of getting higher rent and it's not fair. Well it's pretty sharp practice and uh, illegal by all accounts uh, and if uh, you are aware of uh, somebody doing that and you'd like to make a, a complaint you can take a complaint to the Residential Tenancies Board, the RTB. John from County Meath, also on the same topic, says that there are many landlords who are very decent landlords and don't try to rip off their tenants. But unfortunately, as in every uh, part of life, there are others who want to make a fast buck and have no qualms about raising rents. Uh, John feels that the time has come to have a nationwide cap on rent prices. Mm, okay. So we'll move from that then to the HSE overspend. And uh, Jack texts in and says that he feels that the HSE are in a mess, but says that while hospitals, there doesn't seem to be money for hospitals and for various services, that there, where from his observations, there seems to have been money spent on new offices. And really, maybe somebody should be taking a sit down and looking at where money is best spent. All right, maybe we should all do that. Uh, and and uh, on that note, let's talk about something completely different because Christmas is coming, as you know, and it is uh, the season of peace and goodwill and spending, as Ross Leahy has been finding out. In its Christmas retail monitor, Retail Ireland has predicted that Irish households will spend an average of €2,690 in shops this December. I'm here in the streets of Drogheda to find out if this number rings true. No. Because the first thing, the, the people haven't got the money in the first place. So if they have it, they spend it. But I don't know where they're going with over two and a half grand. That's telephone numbers, you know. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about Work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Not by people in the door, even if people's walking, they'd be very hard to stretch that kind of money. Do you think a family might overstretch themselves trying to... They'll overstretch themselves with the, uh, the credit union to be bowing over that. Mm. And it's paying people to... Bob Peter to pay Paul kind of thing, you know. That's what I think. Of. It's quite possible, yes. It depends, I suppose, obviously, how many people are in the household. And 
think it's kind of close to what you'd be spending yourself? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I've got family coming home, so I've got a gang coming from Australia. Well, if I had that sort of money, I wouldn't be here. I'd be away abroad. Yeah. Let's be honest. So you think that seems way too much? Way, way too much. Way, way too much. If I had three, maybe €400 Euro to spend in presents, I'd be doing very well. Almost €2,700. Does that seem like too much for Irish households you're spending? I suppose, yeah. Well, you don't have it, like, you know. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't have it, but... If, I'd, I'd know if I had it, I'd be spending it, so that's the way I look at it. I won't be spending nowhere near that amount in presents, about 1000 half of that, maybe. Do you think that families might overstretch themselves trying to... Yeah. Yeah, I think everybody overstretches themselves at Christmas. They go try and go over and beyond what they don't need to do. It's a thought that counts. Yeah, that's way too much as well. I wouldn't spend that much money either. I would have said the same. I said around a grand, a grand and a half maybe. But even at that, that's a lot of money. Oh, most definitely, yeah. It's far, far too much. Yeah, and I think it's all about, uh, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, you know. Nowadays, you know, with phones and computers, it's, it's ridiculous. But, you know, every child wants what the next child has. And it's, it's far, far, far too expensive, you know. And it's the parents and, and, and that suffers, you know. And oh yeah, yeah. I mean, hundreds you should be spending, not thousands. Yeah, no. I'd find a thousand euro an average amount because not really, not really like one for spending loads of money on pointless stuff like other families do nowadays. Financial worries now these days would be a lot, a lot handier to spend less than more, really. No, I think that's a uh, scandalous, really. I think uh, 800 to 1,000 is way enough. I think it's ridiculous having to actually spend that much money within a household. Probably a bit much, but uh, I think things have moved up a little bit, but people are still trying to spend more this year than maybe last year. Uh, but I'm, I'm kind of concerned that the people who really can't afford it are trying to get out there and spend money, and then come the new year, things are going to be very tight for them. So there are a certain number of people who will spend that money. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, way too much. Uh, people getting themselves in debt. I won't be spending that much anyway. Seems a lot more than. Seems a lot, yeah. Do you think maybe families might be overstretching? Yeah, every year they are. Mm. Spend way too much money. It's just it's a lot of hype, and people just go over the top. There you go. Those people uh, speaking uh, to Ross Leahy in uh, Drogheda yesterday and uh, thanks to them for taking the time to do that. Now let's go back uh, to what you've been saying to us on the phones. What else have you got for us there, Yeah, some reaction already to your interview with Councillor Maeve Yor in relation to illegal parking in disabled bays. Liz says just... Uh, on your illegal parking discussion. It's worth mentioning that in some car parks in the county, the wheelchair sign on the space is fading and very hard to see that they should make sure that they are legible and that people know that it is a disabled space. That I was in a car park in Drogheda and nearly parked in the disabled parking space because it wasn't visible enough. Only realised it at the last minute and perhaps this should be a consideration to make sure that people don't park in one unintentionally, says Liz, even though she's aware that there are some Mm -hmm. people who do blatantly park in them. Uh, Another listener, Mary, says that unless there is enforcement, people will continue to park in disabled Bays. I have a son who is in a wheelchair. I'm often driving around the town for ages to try and get a space and there's nothing more maddening, says Mary, than a delivery lorry parked in a disabled bay for, in inverted commas, a couple of minutes because it never is a couple of minutes. Mm. 
So she wanted to make that point. Well, it's what happens in the couple of minutes, even if it is a couple of minutes. If somebody comes along and is looking for the space because they need the space, it's not available yes. for that couple of minutes. So they go somewhere else uh, for the time That's that they're right. out of the car. Yes. Hmm. We spoke yesterday, Michael, um, first of all, about uh, the addictions when you were speaking to Councillor um, Joanna Byrne in relation to homelessness and mm. services. Mm-hmm. And there was a comment made that I read out in relation to mental health and addictions. And Charlie from Navin took exception to your response, said he was disappointed with your response that you don't see the link in many cases between mental health and addiction and that he's disappointed with that. He says he knows from experience that there are people with mental health problems who also have addiction problems and he says that... No, an awful lot of them. I mean, the prisons are full of them apart from anything else. I'm not saying that you don't quite often get both but I I, I think what I was wondering was uh, what I thought was meant to mean that uh, addiction problems can lead to mental health problems. Uh, I suppose that it can quite often lead to depression and other problems and I'm sure that's uh, the case. uh, Yeah, and that's the point. He's saying that, you know, addiction can lead to mental health problems and mental health problems can also lead to addictions. Mm, So he wanted Mm -hmm. to make that point. We also had so many comments in relation to your interview, Michael, with uh, Mary Fitzgibbon yesterday. Uh, lots of reactions. That's to the that nurses uh, for, for life. For, yeah, yes. they're, they're looking for a, a constitute or a, a conscientious objection. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Pauline phoned in just to say that he felt she felt that you treated Mary appallingly in the interview. Uh, another listener, well, John, right. phoned yeah. in mm-hmm. and felt that you came across a very smart arse in the interview. Okay, I hope that, that's not right. Uh, so. He felt that the guest knew what she was talking about and John didn't think that you had a clue what you were talking about. Okay. Mm-hmm. Kay rang in to commend Mary Fitzgibbon and to say that she felt it was a fantastic interview and that she applauded her for speaking and speaking the truth. Mm. Another listener says, my heart goes out for Mary. I voted no uh, on the 8th, but we have no say. And that comes in from Rita. A particularly unfair interview, says another listener. We're told the majority want abortion. Then the majority should carry them out and stop harassing people who object to most abortions. Michael, congratulations to Mary Fitzgibbon, who rightly said the babies are actually killed in the womb by the manner of termination of pregnancy. Michael, you said it's the will of the people. Now let's listen to the will of our great midwives. Tony from County Loud says, Michael, you are making a correlation between this speaker and all other citizens who voted on the 8th. But that is quite wrong since only those in the medical professions are directly impacted by the result. Would you, for instance, like to be physically compelled to carry out an abortion? Tony wants to know. I don't know whether it matters or not. Uh, People have decided uh, that it'll be made uh, available as a general medical practice. Uh, Mary was representing, uh, I think, in around 500 out of what I I believe is in the region of 35 to 40,000 nurses in uh, the country. Uh, And undoubtedly, she was sincere in what she had to say. I hope uh, that the interview was just as sincere and honest. 
Okay, will we finish on that? All right, thank you indeed for that. And to everybody who has been in touch with us, if you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715957. Uh, there's very little new it would uh, appear in this legal advice but the stark language that has been used is undoubtedly of concern to many of the MPs it talks about the UK becoming bogged down in protracted and repeated rounds of negotiations if it tries to exit a backstop and it also refers to that backstop on the island of Ireland enduring indefinitely until it was superseded by a long-term EU-UK agreement on trade. Now the verdict in the British papers this morning will make for sobering reading for the British Prime Minister. The Daily Express talks about a last-ditch bid to salvage the EU deal. The Telegraph talks about how the EU could offer Mrs May the chance to delay things if the deal is rejected next week which is expected the Financial Times talks about uh, the legal advice prompting Mrs May to send the chief whip to hold talks with Brexiteers to try and find concessions to avert what they're calling a mass rebellion Uh, the Times then talks uh, about a defeat that could be so catastrophic that it could bring down the government the Sun has a lot of focus on Brexit which it calls Rexit and publishes a half-page editorial on uh, what is described as a plot to steal Brexit by Remain MPs and that must be crushed and that there is a threat of a second referendum which would bring about unimaginable disorder and politicians would unleash a tsunami of rage. Meanwhile, The Guardian talks about Mrs May's future and that it depends on her showing more respect for Parliament, paying the price of not deciding to publish the legal advice originally. Let's talk about where this might be going or might not now with Sinn Féin's spokesperson on Brexit, David Cullinan. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. What are your thoughts on all of this today? Well, listen, it's not a very rosy picture that you painted when you look at the newspaper coverage in Britain, but also if you look at what's happening in the House of Commons and in politics generally in Britain, obviously there is chaos. Obviously, there is massive confusion. There are different opinions, obviously, within even the two main parties, the Tories and the Labour Party. But I think if you separate the noise and the chaos from what all of the individuals and and the groups are saying, I think there is some hope that at the end of the day, there will be an arrangement that won't involve a hard crash out of the European Union by Britain. And what we're trying to avoid in Ireland and what businesses and farmers and people who work in factories, for example, that export products to Britain and elsewhere are worried about on the island of Ireland is that we don't have that hard crash and World Trade Organization rules kicking in and that we have some sort of solution. So that's the focus, obviously, for, for, for Ireland. Obviously, the backstop is a source of contention for the hard Brexiteers mm. because you can't have a hard Brexit and avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. So that conflict was always there. And I suppose 
what is dawning now, even on the hard Brexit ears, Michael, is that the backstop for Ireland and the basic set of protections that Ireland has secured are non-negotiable. They're red lines, not just for the Irish government, but for the European Union. And that's the type of hard Brexit that the hard right and the Tory party want, which there isn't a majority for, by the way, in the House of Commons, is simply not going to happen. So we're seeing a lot of noise. And obviously, it's, it looks like Theresa May will lose the first vote in the House of Commons. Mm. But what's interesting is that there is a majority in the House of Commons for a softer Brexit. There is certainly no majority in the House of Commons for a hard crash out of the European Union. And there was an amendment that the British government lost that gave the uh, House of Commons itself more powers in relation to what would happen if the vote was rejected. And, and they'll be able to vote on that if it is rejected the first time or the second time or the third time as the case may but be. But not just vote on it but to actually have a say in terms of what the different options would be. Well that's questionable now I think because uh, Article 50 uh, is a, is there because of a piece, piece of British legislation. It is law so uh, MPs might vote uh, in order to do one thing but in order uh, to rescind Article 50 uh, you'd need a change in the law and another debate on legislation. Well, I think what you would need is also agreement from the other member states, but what it does do is it means that not just the British government and the Tory party, but the House of Commons would have more say in terms of what the different options are. So there's a range of different options and scenarios that could happen if the first vote is lost. Obviously, there is the prospect of a general election, but that seems the most unlikely outcome. There's a chance and an increased chance of a second referendum a referendum either in out again or a referendum on on the deal that's on the table. But I think what is absolutely fundamental and what's true and I think what's dawned on the vast majority of politicians in Britain is that there will be no renegotiation of the draft withdrawal agreement. Uh, That is now signed off on. That's the substance Mm. of the nuts and bolts of Britain leaving the European Union. I think what's interesting is that the British Labour Party and elements of the Tory party are more concerned about the bigger issue for them of the wider trading relationship between Britain and the European Union. And what they want is more flesh put on the bones of what that will look like. So I think what could happen is that there could be a further negotiation on the political declaration which has accompanied the withdrawal agreement Mm. that did give some indication as to what that future trading relationship would look like. And ultimately, we've discussed this several times on your programme and and you've discussed this with other Uh, people in your programme as well. The best solution for Britain, in our view, from an Irish perspective, was that they would themselves stay as closely aligned to the rules of the customs union and single market as possible. What is now a certainty in terms of the legal uh, opinion that we got from the Attorney General in Britain is that the north of Ireland has got the special status by and large that it looked for in terms of Mm. staying in the customs union and elements of the single market. And I think that the the obvious uh, and the best outcome for Britain and for Ireland would be for that to apply to Britain as a whole, and I think that's the territory that we're, we're that we're heading into. Well, there's but a that's there's there's problematic there's for, there's for the Tory party. There, there, there appears to be a view in the UK that there were a, a number of options up to that uh, amendment, the Grieve amendment that you spoke uh, about a, a moment ago, and one of them was crashing out without a, a deal. But that amendment has taken that option out of it, uh, and that when and it, it seems more a case of when than if uh, the vote is lost next Tuesday, uh, then. Uh, MPs uh, will uh, predominantly vote uh, to do something uh, to save the United Kingdom and that the outcome of it will be that there will either be a referendum on uh, leaving uh, 
or I beg your pardon, a referendum on staying in the European Union or accepting this deal? Yes, I think that's a very fair assessment. And I think the most likely uh, short term outcome would be that Britain would then formally seek an extension of Article 50, which would possibly be for, I'd say, at least six months to allow either for a general election to be held or for a second referendum, or, as I said, for some form of negotiation potentially on putting flesh on the bones of uh, the future trading relationship. All of that, of course, is in the gift in the hands of politicians in Britain, and they have to sort out now how, how, how that's going to uh, happen. But what's fundamental for Ireland and what's very clear is that the baseline protections that we've got will not be renegotiated. Uh, the north of Ireland uh, has to and will stay not just in the single market, but elements of the, uh, or, or sorry, the customs union, but elements of the single market as well. And the hard crash scenario, which I think pretty much now has been taken off the table because of that vote in the House of Commons, was going to be the worst outcome for Ireland because it would mean that the backstop or the insurance policy that is in place uh, would also fall. And like, you have to bear this in mm. mind that there are farmers, I would imagine, listening to your programme on either side of the border who are very concerned. There's businesses who are concerned. Uh, anyone that exports goods to Britain, for example, and there's a lot of companies, I would imagine, in your own area and outside mm. of your own area, uh, where workers in those companies would be concerned about what tariffs or what additional regulations or divergence in regulations would, would be put in place that would impact uh, their jobs. The, the currency fluctuation, which sterling has already had an impact, and that would get worse and potentially will get worse in a hard crash scenario. So that's the worst possible outcome for us. They may sleep a little bit easier tonight. I think, uh, they, I think they will, and I think, but it's that's what I'm saying in terms of there is certainly a lot of chaos mm. and a lot of noise coming from Westminster. But here's the thing: the hard bags of ears are in a clear minority. There is no appetite, no majority in the House of Commons for a Rees Mogg type. Brexit or a Boris Johnson type Brexit. If you look at what the Labour Party are saying and elements of the Tory party who are more pro-European, mm. they seem to be comfortable with a closer relationship to talking about what's called a Norway Plus. Essentially what that means, if you took away the, the, the soundbite, it means that it's uh, Britain essentially staying in the customs union and elements of the single market. And I think the easiest fix for Britain would be just to extend what is included in the insurance policy or backstop mm for Ireland to Britain in its entirety. And that creates challenges for the hard right and the Tory party, but they're in a minority. The question there was, how do we get from where we are now to a solution that's possibly better uh, from our perspective? And we would argue for Britain's perspective, getting that through uh, the House of Commons we don't know whether that will take a second referendum or a general election. It the, seems she's going to lose the yeah. first vote, and not by a small margin, but by a very significant margin. Uh, and the Labour Party seems to be more open to the idea of a, a referendum now than it, it was before. What about a, a general election? How real a prospect do you believe that might be? Well, obviously, it's a it's a real prospect. Uh, it will have implications, obviously, for Sinn Féin. We will contest uh, the general election in the north, of course. We have seven MP seats, and we would see an opportunity to make a number of gains in, in, in that type of scenario. Uh, but I think the bigger issue would be how that will obviously impact out on, on the Brexit negotiations. I think we're more likely to see a second referendum than a general election. But listen, all of this is mm. speculation. We can all have our opinions. What we have to do is watch what happens next week in Westminster. I think it's fairly certain now that she will lose the vote. Uh, I think it's fairly certain then that uh, the, the most obvious short-term outcome would be that Britain would seek an extension of Article 50. I think that would be granted because I don't think anybody, including the European Union, wants to see a hard crash. 
and then it will be well what will happen after that uh, and that, as you said the Labour Party are certainly uh, moving closer to supporting a second referendum Okay, but um, let me just ask you about the election or the prospect of a, an election because that would require a vote of confidence in the government, wouldn't it? And uh, the new statesman is reporting uh, this morning that the DUP would vote in favour of the government, that it would support the government uh, in a, a vote of confidence, even if uh, the withdrawal uh, agreement is voted down. Well, I don't think that a vote of confidence in the government is going to be the biggest issue. Obviously, if she loses a vote of confidence in uh, turns up the volume and the heat for, for Theresa May. You're right that the DUP MPs might vote for the government, but bear in mind there's a lot of very sore, hard Brexiteers that might be tempted to vote against the government, but probably unlikely. Uh, but again, we don't know. These are all imponderables, and we don't know what will happen. What is certain is that at this stage, it would seem, well, we all want the House of Commons to pass this. If it doesn't, uh, then and it looks likely that it won't, then obviously the focus would be on what happens next. And what happens next will be, notwithstanding whether there's votes of confidence in the British Prime Minister, it's what happens in terms of future negotiations. And I think listening to the speeches in in the House Mm -hmm. of Commons over the last number of days, there is a realisation from everybody now, or most people, that the uh, draft withdrawal agreement is sacrosanct. They don't see Europe opening that up and that, well, there might be uh, sharp calls from the hard Brexiteers, in fact, the more moderate voices in the Labour Party and the Tory Party are more focused on uh, what the future trading relationship will be. And I think that's where the attention will turn very quickly once the vote is lost. And if there's a second vote put to the House of Commons, it would have to be some form of additionality. It can come in the form of a renegotiation of the draft agreement because that's already done. I think it it will be in the political statement that a company that does deal with the future trading relationship. But... We have to wait and see, Michael. Um, yeah. you know, this is a crystal ball at this stage. Uh, journey yeah. for everybody, mm-hmm. um, and we'll, we'll see what happens over the next few weeks. Okay, listen, we we'll leave it there for the moment, uh, and thank you as always for joining us. Uh, that's Sinn Fein's uh, spokesperson on foreign affairs and Brexit, uh, David Cullinan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, that very, very long debate in uh, the Dáil last night on abortion before the terminations of a pregnancy bill was passed. We'll hear just a couple of uh, the contributions very briefly, first of all. These nurses, these doctors, these midwives, I, I, I definitely believe they have genuine concerns and I think going forward... Um, they should be listened to. I think it would be. I think it's extremely important. The very notion that GPs should be forced to provide abortion services in their practice is reprehensible. Why can we not operate an opt-in system, as in the case of New Zealand? I weighed up. Would I completely oppose conscientious objection being allowed at all? And I'll tell you why. It's not allowed in Sweden. It's not allowed in Finland. It's not allowed in Norway. Sorry, Iceland. In public health. If somebody wants to, you know, not provide abortion, they can go into the private sector and work in whatever sphere they like. There is an issue in relation to employees of the HSE. Uh, and they are in a slightly different situation because there is the possibility that they could be forced or pressurised to participate or to assist in abortion services. And I, I think this must be clarified by the Minister. It should not affect their employment, it should not affect their employment prospects, nor should it affect their promotion prospects. We had a referendum on women. We had a referendum on women's health care. And you know what? Maybe we should actually think about the woman. Are we actually going to have a situation where a woman, maybe one who's been raped, turns up at her doctor's surgery 
and is shown the door, given the cold shoulder, out you go. We have thankfully, we have thankfully, despite your best efforts, moved very far away from that Ireland. And I'm very proud of that. Fianna Falls, Mary Butler, Independent Peter Fitzpatrick, Solidarities, Ruth Coppinger, Independent Michael Harty and uh, Fine Gael TD and uh, the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, all speaking there in that debate uh, that took place in uh, the Dáil last night. Our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, is on the line. A very long eight-hour debate, Sean, finished at midnight and finally passed through uh, the Dáil, but it's not over yet. No, that's right. It's not over yet. It goes to the Senate today where it has to go through the same procedures and amendments and rigours that it did in the Dáil and that will start this afternoon and it's probably going to continue into next week. They're considering to have having a special sitting on Monday to help speed it along and get through but it's probably going to go into the middle of next week. So we haven't quite seen the last of it yet but this is the last mm. stage of it. So if it does pass in the Shannon, then it will become law. Uh, and there had been concern uh, that it, it wouldn't pass before Christmas uh, and therefore wouldn't uh, make abortion available I- in the new year. Uh, what's your uh, sense on that at this stage? Uh, do you think that the legislation uh, will be in place in time? I think so. There was some fear last night that the legislation wasn't going to get through the Dáil in particular when they took around two hours to get through the issue of conscientious objection almost a quarter of the time available to speak and it did look like it was a bit tight. I think if that Dáil debate had gone in today, the timeline would be very, very squeezed and certainly it's running later than the government would like. They had hoped to pass this last week already. I imagine it will get through the Shannon. The Shannon is slightly more pro-choice in its makeup than the Dáil is. There are less objectors to, to put very amendments and to put things to and some who are going to abstain and probably avoid the debate altogether so I think it will get through and then it goes up to the park of course for the president to Mm. sign into law I imagine that will happen uh, certainly before Christmas but in terms of then the service obviously because it's not just about passing legislation it's making sure that doctors are trained that people know where they can go to get this service that those who want to conscientiously object can make clear that they are conscientiously objecting and all of that, it would be tight enough for it to be in place in January. There'd probably be some sort of service, but definitely not the full one. So it's a, a quite a tight timeline to meet Minister Harris's 1st of, of January deadline. But it looks as though certainly the, the law aspect of it would be there, even if the medical uh, needs a little bit of time to catch up. There weren't that many objectors, though, in the Dáil. Not when you look at uh, the vote. Uh, it was passed by 90 votes uh, to 15 with uh, 12 abstentions. But the objectors were very uh, effective and uh, the Taoiseach uh, accused them yesterday of filibustering. Yeah, there were. There was really a core group of APDs who were bringing these main amendments and while they didn't even make up the majority of the 60 amendments that were put there. They were certainly the, the more meaty ones, if you like, the ones that would have most significant change to the legislation and therefore require debate. But from their point of view, they played it quite cre- cleverly. They used quite a lot of the time they had to speak, although Michael Heady Ray was very clear and very angrily pointed out. He hit back at the Taoiseach saying, we're not delaying, we're not filibustering, we're just doing our duty on it. And he, a number of times, gave up minutes that he had to speak and to, to let other people in. But what you saw happen was that what some of the stuff that the anti-abortion TD said kind of inflamed the pro-choice TDs in the Dáil, um, which meant then that those who actually want this legislation to pass got up and spent quite a lot of time trying to rebut or refute what the other side was saying, which again, et into the clock quite a bit. So that's what nearly pushed us to this not being passed last night, was actually 
while some of the pro-life TDs, small in number, were eating up a lot of time, they were um, getting a rise, if you like, out of a lot of the pro-choice ones who were, were doing quite a lot of speaking. So, ate up a lot of time, but in the end, got there. All right, and the objective was to enact the will of the people. The people decided to repeal the Eighth Amendment and did so on the basis of what they were told would be the legislation. But the concerns that were raised in the debate were predominantly on conscientious objection. The minister said he would always defend conscientious objection, but would not stand for conscientious obstruction. Yeah, that was the line he used. And I thought the, the clip he played from Peter Fitzpatrick was interesting where he said doctors shouldn't be forced, but it's very clear in the legislation that doctors won't be forced to take part in this. Um, like a, The legislation itself says that uh, any uh, medical practitioner, nurse or midwife, will not be required to participate in carrying out a termination uh, of pregnancy in according, accordance with the law. So that is there. I think what the large concerns were uh, is in more in terms of referrals. So Usually, if you went to the doctor and say you went to your GP and you had a broken arm, he couldn't sort you out. He'd have to refer you on to someone who could. And under the proposed new legislation, abortion would be part of healthcare in the same way as any other thing. So that if you went to your GP and that GP was a conscientious objector, they would have to refer you on to someone who could carry out the abortion or who would give you the pill. And there's been some rejection to that, both from doctors and from TPs, who say that by doing that to breaching that person's beliefs because they will then feel complicit in the abortion itself which is something that they don't want to do and is their right but the minister very much refusing that he said look it is health care you have to refer someone on this is their you know their life and their health and you've taken an oath to to look after that and to swear that so the amendments that were brought forward in that regard certainly were defeated last night and while there will be conscientious objection there will be an obligation on doctors or certainly an expectation of doctors to refer people on and in terms of some of the other in, uh, areas of healthcare that might be involved, for example, pharmacists who aren't covered explicitly in the legislation in terms of conscientious objection, what the minister said was that in both the medical council guidelines and in general clinical guidelines, there will be a conscientious objection clause so that they won't have to, if it's against their beliefs and if they don't want to carry it out, they won't have to do that. All right. Well, a little bit of history. There's no doubt about that. And uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. Our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, Drogheda was alight uh, again last night, as uh, you've been hearing. We'll talk about this now with uh, Labour Party uh, Senator and citizen of uh, Drogheda, for that matter, uh, Gerald Nash, who's with us uh, this morning. Uh, it's the third night in a row. We had petrol bombs on a Tuesday, again on Wednesday, then last night, a quarter to nine, uh, a shed at the back of a house on the Donor Road uh, was uh, set on fire, it seems, an accelerant was used at 10 o'clock, a petrol bomb thrown again at a, a living room of a house mm. in Riverbank. Two occupants there at the time. Uh, we heard uh, the chief fire officer say that's, you know, like firing a gun at somebody. Uh, and at a quarter past two in the morning, uh, then a car was set on fire. It's uh, very worrying, isn't it? It is. It's extremely um, concerning, uh, Michael, and I would have been contacted by residents um of the communities affected over the last few days who are concerned for themselves, neighbours who have nothing uh, to do uh, with this. Uh, spoke to the guards um, this morning. Um, obviously, there are active investigations ongoing uh, and we'd be hopeful that there would be arrests soon. Um, and we can't really comment on mm. any speculation about who's involved in this or what mm. it might be related to. But I think um, we can all probably conclude that you know because there's been an escalation of violence and um, um, 
gang related activity yeah. in Drogheda over the last um, couple of months that uh, may very well of course be related to that yeah. that's the speculation and I think that's probably we, what we can conclude in general now I'm not saying that those who are targeted are involved or anything mm. like that Well we know that there's um, a spate of uh, attacks and that a lot of that. these petrol bomb attacks have to do with drug deaths and that sort of thing that's right. uh, and that quite often uh, there's people put at risk as you say whether it's the neighbours or other people in the house whether it's the parents or the children for that matter but there's other people in the house that have nothing to do with this and are, are caught up in these problems That's right and that goes to the very heart of the problem and um, we have a, an issue um, with antisocial behaviour uh, or criminal behaviour in the town as raised mm. at the Borough Council meeting this weekend <clears throat> um, many many councillors uh, drew attention to the fact that um, particularly those who are maybe engaged in antisocial slash criminal activity mm. uh, in local authority estates who um, are um, tenants of Loud County Council um, the antisocial behaviour regulations that are there aren't being enforced. Is this worrying in that it's it spread out from Money More? Three incidents last night alone, and none of them in Money More. Um, yeah, it is. Um, but having said that, of course, there's no um, hard border, as it were, uh, and you know, various estates aren't hermetically sealed. Mm. There are relationships and friendships and associations going right across the town, and in fact, outside of the town as well, into East Meath and other parts uh, of, of the area. Uh, this is very fluid, um, and this is, I think, what's concerning residents as well. Mm. Uh, people who may be living next door or living, you know, in the same street and the same area as somebody who may be targeted are concerned for their children, they're concerned for their own welfare, concerned for their own safety. Mm. Um, so most likely, it's true to say that anybody involved in drugs could get caught up in this, and most people in Drogheda are living fairly close to somebody involved in drugs. Well, I think most people anywhere, it's, it's, well, it's yes. you know, but, in, in, but, but, in the modern but, world. Um, but, you know, you know and, and of course, remember, Michael... Um, they don't have this problem people, in Kells, for example. A lot, a lot of know. people that, that we're aware of. Um, uh, this is a problem in other towns and other mm-hmm. cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just con- uh, restri- uh, no, but this violent to feud, it, but this feud in fact at the moment is, and, and that's what is obviously referring to, related yeah. related mm-hmm. to to um, to Drogheda. and it's very um, concerning indeed. Of course, many people indeed who who may be targeted may not have any direct involvement mm. in well, this and this goes to the heart of the problem made, yeah. I mean yeah. of course we know and I know from my own discussions with um, people who um, have, have been targeted and mm. um, community leaders in, in the area that you know we have people who may have a um, small um, you know, hash or grass habit mm. uh, are owe somebody 50 euros and suddenly that mm. uh, escalates to 500 euros 1000 euros and then are asked mm. to do something that they don't want to do and are threatened and intimidated and yeah. we know the consequences yeah. of that and I want to say identity uh, and I mean I don't know uh, if R- relations it, uh, of people involved who are being targeted friends of people involved mm. who are being targeted um, so it's very very worrying uh, and if somebody throws a petrol bomb at a, a vacant property. I don't know if that's a, a mistake or if uh, something was intended by that, but it would make you a question like how much thought is going into this? Well, absolutely. I mean, this is mindless criminality uh, and uh, when we've mindless criminality uh, like this, um, innocent people um, are caught up in the crossfire, uh, as it were, not to put too fine a point on it. And that's my concern that um, ultimately somebody who's not involved, even ephemerally, uh, or by association, mm. uh, or by relationship with somebody, so, you know, somebody completely innocent innocent of um, of anything uh, could be could be injured and their, their their welfare could be compromised there's something Michael I, I think that we need to focus on as well in the broader picture here um, Councillor P.O. Smith and I and Councillor Paul Bell have been working with community leaders over the last few weeks in areas that have been affected to look at what can be done in terms of restoring hope and confidence 
in these areas because as we know, you know 99.9% of people aren't involved, get on with their lives, rear their families, mm. try to do their very, very best and people in those communities are doing that. But there's a sense of hopelessness with some because you know these areas have been targeted because there are people who are involved in criminality who happen to live in these areas. There's, is, uh, they feel it's besmirching the character and good name of these areas and they're right. Mm. So what needs to happen is there needs to be a I think a multifaceted, multi-agency response to trying to, you know, to try to restore confidence, restore hope, and rebuild community infrastructure in these areas, areas that have suffered from disadvantage um, and, over, and over the years. Money more is the prime now, example here. Yeah, absolutely. And there are people who I, I've worked with, and people who I've represented over many, many years. Who and, and I'm very proud to represent mm. uh, families, individuals, people, community leaders I've worked with who are doing an enormously important job. But I mean, if you if you look at like I mean, next week yeah. I'm, I'm meeting with um, senior management of the HSE in relation yeah. to resourcing um, frontline drug services in Drogheda. Yeah. Um, the frontline drug services in Drogheda are uh, effectively surviving on um, minuscule budgets, yeah. dealing with um, a tsunami of drug use that's built up in this town over the last couple of years. I mean, only they're, they're managing uh, on a meagre budget mm. that has stayed the same over the last uh, years. Uh, one increase just during one spell when I was minister, uh, targeting some resources to mm. that particular organisation. But whatever the hope line. there is in dealing with drug misuse, it's a long-term hope. What we have now uh, is something separate to the right. drugs problem, uh, uh, although it's uh, entwined in it. it, it it's a, a violent criminal feud. Uh, and people, I'm sure, in places like Moneymore will be asking, how can these attacks be taking place when the place is crawling with cops? That's true. Um, and we have more guards on the streets now. Um, thankfully, that needs to be made permanent. Uh, this can't be a sticky plaster solution to a current problem. Uh, mm. We're under-resourced anyway, and it's difficult enough to police an area like Drogheda that's effectively a city mm. now. Uh, but the authorities appear to think it's still a small Into the town. town on top of the additional resources right. and, and the armed And people have said to me over the last few days, it's great so to yeah. see, actually, the, the, the yeah. one person mentioned to me, they've actually seen mm. two uh, sets of, mm. of, of, of guards patrolling the streets, you know, within minutes of one another, and they felt very reassured about that. Absolutely, it is very concerning that these kinds of attacks happen when we have additional resources. Now, Garda responses, my understanding is, from speaking to Garda this morning, responses to those issues last night were very, very swift indeed, both by the Fire Service and by Garda Shikana. Uh, I sense that uh, the guards have a handle on this in terms of they understand who may be responsible list, they're breathing down the mm-hmm. necks of these individuals, and we know how difficult it can be to actually get that information together on, five, and to, to prosecute those cases. Five, five attacks. Drogheda is on fire. Five attacks in three days. Uh, and it would appear as there's no arrests as yet. Um, well, I, I can't comment on mm. how the criminal justice system mm. is working and the policing system, but I would be hopeful that there would be. It, it, it's um, worrying, though, isn't it, for people living in the town? But it is, and as I said on your programme, mm. I think two weeks ago, mm. Michael, I mean, one of the big problems that I have is the lack of enforcement of the, uh, actually, in theory, very strong anti-gang legislation that we have. Mm. Um, there may very well be people who are involved in these attacks who would consider to be part of gangs. Um, and the guards of, know who of, they are. Of organised criminal activity. And your point and is that the laws is that there... These laws are not being enforced. The, the guards, guards should be able to lift them. Well, well, the, the guards are the guards are lifting, um, to use the colloquial term, uh, individuals. Um, but um, we find in cases like this that the Director of Public Prosecutions uh, isn't 
uh, sanctioning uh, the guards uh, to actually use the full extent of the laws that are available to um, lock people up, uh, people who are a danger to society, a danger to their communities, lock them up for a very long time under the legislation that we have. I've spoken about this in the programme before, and um, you know, um, people are involved in all kinds of criminal activity. What they can't do is terrorise communities they live in. Uh, it's not right. Uh, it's not fair, and uh, it's not uh, just in terms of decent people are living in these communities. They need our protection. Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash, thank you indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie 